Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathram. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we share messages of leadership development, mindset, personal growth, human performance, fear, ego, how to deal with those human attributes, those things that affect us on a daily basis. We go find those messages from executive leaders, C-suite leaders, high performers. We bring you those messages so that we can all learn together. These are actual real human beings that you can connect with and make a mentor out of. So we're excited to have have you on board, please remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening so you don't miss any of these great messages. Come find me on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're also now on YouTube. Our motto is to continue getting 1% better one day at a time. We're onboarding sponsors. We're leveling up our production quality. We're building out that YouTube page and we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to come find us, subscribe, make sure you hit the notifications. Don't miss out on any of the messages. Things are changing and we want you on board. This episode is sponsored by Leashes of Valor. One leash saves two lives. Leashes of Valor is working hard to bring service dogs and post 9-11 veterans together in order to enrich both lives. You can check them out on their website, leashesofvalor.org. They're a nonprofit founded by veterans right here in Northern Virginia. They also have a special offer running right now. You can give the gift of love. That's L-O-V, Leashes of Valor. If you sponsor a service dog for just $25 this Valentine's Day, they will send your special someone an L-O-V note. Check out their website, leashesofvalor.org. There you'll find warrior stories, opportunities to donate. You can shop their merchandise, which all goes to supporting their cause. We're excited to have their support and to support them in everything that they do. Check out leashesofvalor.org. Today's episode is with Fran Ricciopi, former U.S. Army Special Forces and college athlete and now host of the Jedberg podcast and chief people officer of Analytic Solutions. Fran and I talk about human performance, just how much more we have to give, even if emotionally and mentally we think we're about to fail. He shares his gratitude and appreciation for the camaraderie that his experience as a U.S. Army Ranger provided him. He also opens up with us in an honest way about how difficult his transition into civilian life actually was and how he utilized the resources that were at his disposal, things like Get Headstrong, so that he can get the help he needed to work on himself so that he can then show up better in his family. So really excited to bring this episode. Remember to subscribe wherever you're listening and let's get into the episode. Well, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Fran Rachopi. thank you so much for joining us. The Jedberg Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for, thanks for coming to my house and doing this. Yeah, I know. This is a great so setup. Easier. <laughs> this is a fantastic setup that you have here. We're out in your, uh, is this your man cave? I call it the war barn. The war barn. So, but my, my wife would call it uh, a playroom. My kids would call it a playroom. My daughter would call it the spot where she goes to hide. Yeah. And then I've toyed between, we maybe it's a gym or maybe we can maybe keep it this concept, I don't know, the war barn where I can come out and hide from everybody else. So that's yeah. what we've been doing. This is where you can do all your research. You've got a nice... Uh wood-burning stove here keeping us warm well no no insulation so we had to we had to f- fire that thing up and see see how hot we can get it in here on that thing yeah yeah well look we met a couple 
I don't know, a couple months ago. And we've been planning this. So I'm really happy that we were able to put this together and, and get it going. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. So the Jedberg podcast, let's talk about the name. All right. Defi- what is Jedberg? So the Jedberg was an organization that was created in World War II. In 1943, primarily in May, late spring, early summer, May 1943, the war by and large was lost. Uh, the Germans had invaded France. They'd occupied you know, all of France. They were entrenched. They had superior machine guns. They had superior equipment. They were bombing London. And the Allies came together. And I really identified that there are only a couple of ways to defeat the Germans. Really, the only one of the very few options and the one that rose to the top was certainly was the invasion of Normandy and Operation Overlord. So Operation Overlord was concepted. But when the Allied commanders looked at actual execution of this, they identified that with the speed of German reinforcements down onto the beaches of Normandy, there the chance of success was little to none. So they came up with a concept that they where they needed what they called visionary leaders. I call it drivers of change. We call it they also called it transformative leaders and they needed an organization that they could put together who would disrupt by means of subversion, sabotage, or whatever means necessary, stop the German reinforcements from coming down into Normandy. So they came up with what they called Operation Jedburg. Operation Jedburg was Jedburg was a place in northern Scotland. So they recruited from each of the armed forces of the U.S., France, and Britain. They recruited every uh, company or every sorry country had 100 men. They took them from anywhere in the military. How many did they get total? 300 total. Numbers vary depending on who you talk to, but yeah. the, 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 somewhere between three and 400 people total. And they created three-man teams. And on each one of these three-man teams, you had one American, one British, one French operator. And they trained them up. And they sent them, uh, starting the night before D-Day, they parachuted behind enemy lines into occupied France. Their job was to link up with the French resistance forces that had been developed through the OSS and all, all throughout France. And the Jedburg teams would link up with the different OSS operatives and the French resistance elements. They would train them, they would equip them, and then they would conduct these sabotage and subversion operations against German reinforcements as the Allies invaded uh, on D-Day and then the subsequent several you know, weeks and months going, right. uh, until they got everybody you know, on, onto, the, onto the Normandy beach and then pushed into France. And so that's what these guys did. Uh, they parachuted in, started the night before D-Day. They did it for the, every night, three-man teams parachuted in, and they began to blow German supply lines, uh, you know, um, destroy fuel trucks, uh, destroy tanks, hit the, camp, the German camps at night, uh, you know, real quick hit them, you know, it caused some casualties, uh, down trees was a big one where, you know, they'd have the Germans would have large tank formations rolling down the German roads. They down a tree in the front one. And then, you know, the Germans would have to tr- figure out how do we, how do we actually get by this down tree? They'd start clearing that obstacle and then you know, they drop a tree behind them, uh, or they'd blow bridges and then they would prevent the Germans from being able to, to get across the various rivers down in, into there. And so there are stories about this operation where normal movements, which would have taken two to three days 
for the Germans to make un, unimpeded were taking anywhere from three to six weeks. And they were getting hit with massive casualties along the way because as, as they were then stuck in these problem sets trying to figure out how they're going to solve it, the Germans, then the French resistance and the Jedbergs would hit them from behind, inflict casualties, disappear into the woods, uh, and then go off and try to do it again. So an amazing operation of what we call visionaries, drivers of trans- transformative leaders, those dedicated to winning no matter the challenge. Uh, when I came up with the Jedberg podcast about this time last year, I was thinking of a name because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to interview people today who are making an impact in their industry, whatever their industry is, whether it's whether they're an entrepreneur, a founder in business, whether they're an an athlete, professional sports, Olympic sports, you know, whatever, uh, or coming out of the military or you know, social activism, journalism, wherever they came from, if they're creating an impact and they're dedicated to persevering, solving challenges and creating impact in their world, I wanted to tell that story. And I thought about my career in special operations, my lineage, had studied the Jedbergs, knew the lineage of the special forces comes out of the Jedberg teams. And I said, this is a perfect name. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, where did you learn everything that you learned about the Jedbergs? It sounds like in the military. Well, the, the Jedbergs, so after World War II, at the conclusion of the war, the Jedberg organization actually then became part, the CIA was stood up and the CIA was stood up as kind of the secondary effort after the, the OSS or the office of strategic service and the CIA began and the Jedberg organization who was closely aligned with the OSS then became the operations directorate of the CIA, the guy, the paramilitary arm that actually went out and, and began to uh, execute operations on the ground and taking the Intel that came from the OSS and then executed it on the ground. The U.S. Special Forces, the Green Berets, started by President Kennedy in 1952, were an offshoot of the Jedbergs into the OSS Operations Directorate, and then the action arm of that of, of that world became yeah. the Special Forces. How long were you in the in the military? You were in the United States Army. I was. I was in the army. I was in. Uh, I was in ten special forces group, and I served a total of about twelve and a half years. Yeah. What and how old were you when you joined the army? I joined the army in two thousand and three. I was twenty three. Yeah. Uh, so right out of school. So right out of college, I'd gone to Boston University. I studied broadcast journalism. I wanted to be the next Tom Brokaw. He was yeah. my hero. Was he? And, uh, I remember watching him all as a kid and saying, wow, you know, that's just an amazing career, an amazing job. And you can get up there and, and report the news and talk about what's going on in the world. And there's so much, there's so much impact you have in journalism and being able to tell people's stories and being able to, to present back then much more than today, objectively, much more objectively than lives today, what's actually going on in the world and then allow people to, to think for themselves right. and, and make their own determination. And Tom Brokaw was just so excellent at that. And I went to school. Uh, I studied, I said, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be a reporter. And then nine 11 was my junior year and nine 11 happened September of my junior year. And I actually looked at that and I said, well, I got to go be a war correspondent. I mean, I can go there. I, you know, why would I sit in the, I don't want to be Tom Brogoss sitting in the anchor chair. I can yeah. go be one of these guys running around, you know, and, and chasing the war in some, yeah. in some conflict zone. And then for the next couple of years, 
in 2001 into two into three, you saw what unfolded, especially in the early days of Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, where U.S. Special Forces, the Green Berets, went in in October of 2001 in Afghanistan. And I watched these guys with beards and long hair, riding horses, saving the world and, yeah. and truly making an impact. And I started thinking at that point, whoa, those guys are like doing it. Yeah. You know, and then there's reporters there and they're covering it. But I'm like, whoa, well, maybe I could go do that. And then I could be a reporter later. And then in 2003, we went into Iraq. And when we went into Iraq, we created what was called embedded journalism. First period of time where you actually had reporters sitting on tanks, sitting during the, I'm talking about the initial invasion, sitting with military units where it was real. We had seen in 19, in the Gulf War in 91 was the first, they called it CNN war, satellite war, right? Where you were able to see via satellite TV and cable television, this 24 seven news, right? About what was going on. Afghanistan reporters were there, but they weren't with the troops in Iraq. They were there and you saw firsthand what was going on. And so watching that, I started thinking, man, I need to go do this. I need to be the, the other guy. I need the other guy on the other side who's actually creating that impact and making that change right now versus reporting on it. And, uh, and then I watched Geraldo Rivera and I'll say this and, and maybe Geraldo one day will listen to this because I want to get Geraldo on my, on, on my show. show. Yeah. <laughs> right? But, but I watched Geraldo Rivera and he was with an infantry squad. I don't remember if they were Marines or the army and they got into a firefight and Geraldo pulled out a pistol and which he wasn't supposed to have because reporters, you know, are non-combatants. Right. Right. Uh, and, he ends up like falling down. He tripped. He fell because they're running through the street. And then he starts getting yelled at by all of these infantry guys. And they're like, what are you doing? You idiot. Why do you have a gun? You know, get up. <laughs> You're going to get killed. And I saw that. And I, that was like the defining moment where I said, nope, <laughs> not going to be that guy. Yeah. Got to go be the other guy. If I want to be going to journalism, if I want to be a reporter, if I want to be Tom Brokaw, I can do that later. And I'll take all these experiences that I had. And then I'll wrap that up. It'll set a foundation. And then eventually I'll go do that. And that's kind of where we are today. Yeah. Why specifically the army though? Like what was it? Was it specifically because it was those special forces uh, folks that you, you saw or met because there's, there's special operations in each, in each branch. Like what was it about the army that, that called to you? Yeah, I think, I think it was the green berets. Um, It was the mission of the green berets. So I did, I did my homework. My dad will tell me and, you know, probably, you know, I think doesn't say it anymore, uh, but certainly would tell me all the time. You should have gone in the air force. Is he an air force guy? He wasn't. No, but, but anything about the air force and his experience growing up, you know, he, he had seen conflicts where you could go, if you're an air force guy, I mean, it's a good life, but I mean, a lot of the times, right? You got crew rest. You got now all the Air Force people will come after me after I say I this. No, right? But but you had situations in the '90s in like Bosnia where you're an Air Force pilot and you're launching out of Italy and you're flying into Bosnia. You know, you're running missions and you're coming home and you're and you're you're picking your kids up at school. Yeah, uh, you know, and you're having breakfast and dinner at yeah. home. And then, uh, and in the day you're conducting real world, you know, combat operations, which is pretty cool. 
uh, not that way so much, you know, being in, being in the army or certainly being in, as a green beret, right. Where you're going to deploy and you're going to be there and yeah. you're going to be there until someone tells you to come home or the, or the mission's accomplished. There's an element of the, of the mission of green berets that I believe is one of the most critical and important missions in national security. And I think a lot of people, when they look at special forces, they think to themselves, primarily because my brother's in the seals and I make fun of the seals a lot, but I have a lot of seals ran and, and look, they're, they're great. They're a phenomenal organization. Uh, and, and I just was giving a talk, um, two weeks ago and I said the two greatest organizations in the world, you know, U S Navy seals and U S green berets. Um, but people think a lot of times when they think about special forces that you're a door, you know, what we call a door kicker. Yeah. You know, you're going to go up, you're going to, you know, helicopter in fast rope onto some, some building, blow a door with some explosives, go in, you know, shoot everybody in the room and then, you know, get back on the helicopter and leave. And that's not really the case. Yeah. You know, there's a very small percentage of those operations that actually go like that. There's units that are very focused on doing yeah. that. You guys are the quiet professionals quiet prof- is the, is, is the name. And, that comes back to the mission set and the mission set primarily is what we call unconventional warfare. And that's the overthrow of a government or occupying force. And, and that's really important. You have an established government or you have an occupying force. Occupying force is something like we saw with the Taliban, right. uh, not a recognized government. Well, I say we saw, we see again, uh, you know, not a recognized government, but occupies control of the, co- of the country. So the green berets mission is to conduct through sometimes sabotage, subversion, you know, going back to the Jedbergs. going back to the Jedbergs, unconventional warfare, and how do we? And you can also people call it guerrilla warfare. How do we partner with people who are indigenous to that nation to train them, equip them, and then conduct combat operations with them to affect the change that the U.S. government wants within that country. Sometimes, like we saw in Afghanistan, that's done very kinetically, you know, meeting with with use of force. Right. Uh, Where if you look at Afghanistan in 2001, the Taliban was defeated in three weeks by about five special forces team and the power of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, You know, we can argue all day long what happened from that point forward. But combat operations in that in that country against the occupying force were, were affected very, very quickly to a very high degree of success. That mission is so important with what we do. And then there's some other missions within special forces called foreign internal defense. So going primarily what we do in Africa, we go to Africa, we train and what I had an op- opportunity to do for almost two years in Africa, which is yeah. to go there and, and build what we call partner nation or African nations, special operations capabilities. Do you have, is there a, a part of, this country, whatever country that may be or wherever it is, where we can train them and we can train them, we can equip them uh, by sending our teams and our, our operators there and then make them better uh, so that they can go out and what I call solve their own problems in the future. And there's something really important about that. There's something really impactful about that. We, our resources, even though we're the United States of America and we can touch you, uh, you know, wherever we want, however we want, you know, our, our political and, and diplomatic and military resolve sometimes only goes so far in our resources. You know, we, we are still resource constrained and we can't be everywhere in the world. One of the ways in which we are very successful in affecting change in areas where we can't or don't want to be is we train others to do that. 
And that is a primary mission of the special forces. And when you combine those things, you look at an organization that is made of people who are dedicated to success. They're dedicated to winning. You know, I, I talk about it you know, in every episode. They're winning no matter the challenge. Uh, and that's what really intrigued me about being a, being a Green Beret. Yeah. Yeah. And so how long were you in? You were, how many years did you spend serving in? So I got out in January of 2016. I uh, went in in October of 2003. Yeah. So over about, yeah, almost 12 and 12 yeah. and a half years. Yeah. Look, I mean, looking back, I mean, it's not, and, and right now you do a lot of executive coaching. It seems like you do give some talks, like you're utilizing that skill in your everyday life now, but looking back, like, what do you think? Let's say top three, top three things that you're most grateful for <laughs> that, that you don't think that you would have otherwise gotten had you not made that decision to be in, in the army, but in special forces specifically, because you could have done anything in the army. Sure. Well, in my first couple of years in the army, I was in the infantry. Well, yeah. Uh, and because as an, as an officer, so I went to officer candidate school. Um, and as, as an officer, you can't go directly into the special forces. You go into another branch, you serve time, you're a platoon leader uh, as a lieutenant. And then once you become a, a captain, then your window opens up and you go to selection. And if you make it, you can you be enlisted and go into special forces? You can. You go through what's called the 18 X-ray program. So there's a direct entry program that exists where you can uh, you you can apply through the recruiter and go in and prepare yourself and and then get in and uh, and do that. Um, I'll give a sh- I'll give a, a a plug. I won't call it a shameless plug, but I'll give it a plug for for one of our sponsors, 18 Alpha Fitness, which actually um, has a fitness program which is designed for. Uh, people who want to go to selection, whether it be to be a Green Beret, a Navy SEAL, a Marine Raider, you know, Air Force uh, um, combat controller, whatever you want to do, uh, they actually have the entire fitness programs. You download their app. It's really cool. So they're preparing uh, you. And they're preparing you. And it started by a guy who I went to OCS with uh, who had been enlisted in the Green Berets, transitioned to become an officer was in my OCS class and then served with me in 10 special forces group, Kevin Edgerton. And we're actually going to have him on in a couple of weeks. Um, I think we'll, we'll air his episode at the end of December, but, uh, but yeah, so you can go directly in. There is an element of preparation though. Yeah. And the reason why I say all that is because you've got to be ready. Yeah. Uh, it's, this isn't like going and going to apply for a job at the local pharmacy. Right. And I only say that because that was my first job was in the, in the <laughs> pharmacy when I, in, in the town I grew up in, but you know, certainly much different going in and trying to go to selection versus, yeah. versus something like that. But what are those things? What do you like looking back? Like, what are you most grateful for out I, of that experience? In particular, I think the first thing is, is perspective. You are, you are given, and I know you talked to Chris Schmidt and I'm sure he, I'm sure he mentioned perspective a few times in your conversation, but, (laughs) but I do a lot with Chris and azimuth leadership and and he's just great. He's been a great friend, a great mentor. You guys were in the same unit. Yeah. We, we served together. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Chris has been you know kind enough to bring me into his work, uh, at Azimuth and the Traverse and I'm excited done some to go. great things. Oh, it's, all right. Are you going to come? Yeah. You got it. It's I've so already signed up. Great. I'll figure out how to get there, but next good. to you and I'll be there. All right. Good. Yeah. No, that's going to be a good time. I told you we need to do a winner one too. Really, really make something yeah. of some people. Um, but perspective you gain from being number one in the military, but then also have being, fortunate enough to make it and serve in special operations. I think it is unlike any other experience that you might, or a lot of people may have in the world. You see things and you see events. I spoke with general uh, Stan McChrystal, right? 
um, we, we, we released his episode, uh, episode 34 and he wrote a book on risk. Uh, it's called risk, a user's guide. Risk is the defining, I'll call it event, you know, or, or that happened that every leader has to deal with. The military and special operations teaches you to identify or what General McChrystal calls um, you know, detect, assess, respond, and learn from risk in a way that you can't replicate because you're constantly detecting and assessing risk. And that could be you know, personal risk. It could be risk to your team. It could be risk, operational level risk, tactical risk, strategic level risk. You can be a special forces detachment commander or junior guy on a special forces team and be one of 12 people in a country. And there's stories about this all the time. The actions you make as simple as going out to a restaurant where you may argue with a waiter, you may get in a car accident, something may happen that may not have anything to do with you. You may have been a victim can have strategic impact. So you gain a level of, perspective that comes from your identification and classification of risk because you're always looking at these different situations and having to figure out what are my actions going to be what do i need to do here what's required of me and then that allows you i think to become so grounded in so many ways that things happen around you when you get out and you see people i call you know, hair on fire and they're running around and it's the end of the world and all these things are going wrong and you're like whoa hey stop what's actually going on here Okay. And what needs to happen? What's the, what's the end state that you're looking for? The military is great about identifying the end state. If you can identify the end state, you can figure out how to get there in a logical manner. What happens so many times when people don't have so many of these different experiences where they're always kind of using the same thought level process to get to the solution is that they just jump to, I've got to do something. I don't know what to do. So I just got to do something. Right. It military teaches you to calm down assess what's going on, figure out a plan, but always know where you got to get to. If you can do that, gain that perspective, then you are able to operate at a much higher, more effective level with a higher degree of result yeah. at the end. Yeah. I'd say that's the first thing. The second thing is an appreciation. Uh, we call it gratitude. Uh, a gratitude for being an American. Um, a gratitude for what we have and what we understand, what we understand life is in this country. I go ahead. Do you think that came from your ability to travel and see other places to have even more of a reinforced? I do. I did. Yeah. I do. Absolutely. Because we become, we're insular in, in the U S the yeah. majority of the population is insular. Yeah. We, we live in a country that is surrounded by two oceans. Um, you know, I'm sure our northern and southern borders are, uh, you know, are are there. But I mean, these are friendly countries to us, by, uh, by right. and large. Canada's I mean, not invading. Um, you know, Canada is not invading us. You know, we have. I mean, certainly we have border problems, right? You know, well, and and, and the refugee that. crisis down on the southern border, and there's you know the, the narco effect of of um of drugs and and the war on drugs that has happened in the southern border. But these are not at the strategic level, these are not our enemies. Okay, we do not, so we do not have a threat to our border per se, right? We can argue, you know, the, the next generation, the next battlefield of cyber right. and hybrid warfare, but 
in a physical threat, we don't have that. The rest of the world doesn't operate like that. When you're able to travel to the rest of the world, and, and you don't need to be in special operations to travel the rest of the world and gain an appreciation. And you can go to places in Southeast Asia. You can go to places in the Middle East. You can go to places in Africa and nice places in Africa. I mean, I've spent time in Tanzania. I've gone to Zanzibar. Yeah. I mean, it's a resort, but you leave the resort and you go into downtown Zanzibar. Yeah. You, you still will gain an appreciation of, I mean, that's like Hawaii, but Zanzibar doesn't look like Hawaii downtown. Yeah. Does at the beach maybe, but it's a different quality of living go to go to india you know go, there's so many places yeah. where you can go in the world and see that the standard of living that the majority of americans are are able and fortunate enough to live in and what this country means in terms of freedom and our ability to speak our mind and our ability to have what i'll call you know vocal discontent right that we've seen over the last couple of years is unlike any other country in the world and yeah, you're not allowed to do that in a lot of other countries a- absolutely not be that outspoken about the things that you dislike in superpower countries you're not allowed to do that go to china go to china and and, and have and, and have a protest you can't they try to look what hong happened kong. in hong kong I, yeah yeah it's exa- i mean and hong kong technically is not part of China. Well, China, China cracked down on that. Yeah. And you, then, right. You, you got to be back. charged with Chinese law as a person of Hong Kong, which is not, it wasn't illegal in Hong Kong when you were doing mm-hmm. that. You can protest in Hong Kong. Right. Uh, but now you're being not charged anymore. with, yeah. But so, even, you know, have you found, I, I, I want to, I don't want to take us off too much, but like I, I was thinking about some of these places and you look at, they have, I guess, arguably so much less than us, but have you found, what about their happiness level? Do, are they content and happy without? Have you found some people, I mean, maybe not in the, in the places where there's like an overpowering regime and it's making it a nightmare to live in, but some of these other places like portions of India, portions of other countries in, in Asia where they just kind of live simply. Well, to some extent, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And, Oh, just like here in in the U.S., where you have a vast majority of the population who doesn't know much else outside of this country, it's the same in other countries. And so, what do you know? You know what's in front of you. You know what you know, yeah. you've been brought up on. You know what you've been raised on. You know what you see and what you experience. And unless you've had the opportunity to go see other things and experience other things, you really don't. You don't really know the true effect. Mm-hmm. What is so impactful about understanding what the rest of the world looks like is you got to be there. Um, you know, we're, we talk about this thing, you know, now leadership, leadership from afar over the horizon leadership. You know, I, I got a hard time with that one. What's, um, what's meant by that leadership over the horizon leadership is, is, is what's is, is kind of in the news right now as this concept. It's what they said they wanted to do in Af- the administration. said they wanted to do in Afghanistan, you know, we saw it. We saw it in 2009, 10, around then too, when we, with Libya situation, North Africa, uh, which was, you know, well, we can overthrow Muammar Gaddafi and we can do this kind of lead from behind thing. Really difficult conversation, I think, 
for me to have. I think a lot of leaders who understand that you got to be there. Uh, you can't lead from behind. Uh, it almost it almost doesn't work in like the definition of it. Um, you know, the infantry says the infantry in the army there. Their motto is follow me. Uh, you know, a jump master gets in an airplane and gets everyone ready to go. And if it's a jump master led jump, right, you know, they'll stand on, on the door, they'll stand at the ramp and they'll, they'll wave their arm and yell, follow me and jump out. And everybody goes, you know, that, that's how we understand leadership. Very hard to lead when you don't have ground knowledge. Similar to on week, I interviewed Michael Scott Moore. Um, Michael Scott Moore is a journalist and an author. He was captured by Somali pirates uh, in Somalia on a research trip to write a book about Somali pirates. Uh, and then he subsequently spent two years and eight months as a hostage um, in Somalia itself and then a good amount of time on a ship off the coast. I was fortunate when I, was, I spent six months in Djibouti um, and I was fortunate enough to actually work on, on, we would receive the updates on his, on, on his situation, what we knew, the Intel reports, uh, and then was there a couple of times when there was an opportunity potentially to go get him. Unfortunately, we were never able to go get him. It just never lined up. We got close, yeah. got up to the president once or twice, but never able to actually get it done. But Michael Scott Moore, in my conversation with him and in his book, he talks about you don't know you can read as much as you want. I think his quote is, you know, you're, you're not an expert because you read about it, right? You can read about a lot of things. You can see a lot of things on TV. You can see how other people live in, you can see famine in Africa. You can see, you know, poverty in, in, in the middle East or other, other areas of the world until you go there and you experience it and you see it. it it's, it's not real. Yeah, it's that appreciation when you come home and you get off the plane and very quickly, regardless of how gone you're, how long you're gone, you'll still come home and get off the plane, hop in the car, go to the store, pick up what you want, go home, turn the air conditioner or the heat on. Right. And quickly forget, you know, wow, yeah. where was I? What was I just doing? But then you got to allow it to sink in and you got to begin to appreciate what you have simply by being an American. Right. Uh, and simply by being fortunate enough to grow up in this country. Um, and, and that is so important and something that, you know, as I'm, I try now to instill, even in my kids, to understand that yeah. you know, what you have, this is not the rest of the world. Uh, and, and, and your ability to be upset is also an earned right. 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 Yeah. So, so what are those three again? So we've got, okay, so I only gave you two. two. So I got was, one more. So, so perspective, right. Like gratitude was so, the second. Okay. So you had perspective and gratitude. And the third one is, is camaraderie. Yeah. Uh, there is, a, there's something that comes from being in a group of like-minded people for so long. Yeah. Uh, that is very, very difficult to replicate. Do you seek um, that out in your life now? Like I think out? one of the biggest things that you lose that you don't think about when you get out of the military, I know I didn't, is that you, all your friends, the people you identify closest with, 
the people that you spend more time with, even than your family, yeah, are are no longer there. Did you grieve that? You I think you do. Uh, I think you do. I mean, I remember grieving it the day I got out. You know, I was driving off Fort Carson and looking in the rearview mirror, saying, "Everything I know is is there. Yeah. Everything I know is behind me." I think it sinks in after, though, over some time, where now you have to find new friends, you have to find a new life, you have to figure out. You know, first, you got to figure out what you're going to do and, and who you're going to be, but then you also got to figure out who are those people you're going to surround yourself with. But there's a bond, there's a closeness, there's a shared suffering uh, almost that comes from it. I, I, I talked to Olympic rower Jevy Stone, and Jevy Stone says that you know hard things bond people to, together yeah. more than easy things. I, th- I mean, and that's yeah. true. That's yeah. I mean, camaraderie. I mean, we see that in so many different things. Like my own experience, I shared a little bit with you about uh, that. I'm sober, mm-hmm. and you know, going through that process of getting sober with people that are also new in recovery and just starting to change their life completely around like but there's a bond that's created there and it and it's i found it in playing football right training and playing with like in groups of people there's also just like that's why those group um it's not group therapy it's just people that understand you pointed you you brought it up a little while ago is the fact that like unless you're there, you wouldn't understand. There's no reason for yeah. me to write a book on like pregnancy. Cause I'll never be able to, <laughs> to do that. Right. It makes right, no right. sense. But if you've been there and you have a shared experience, you're uniquely qualified to support each other and help each other in a way that no one else is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we see that now with, with, um, veteran suicide rates. Uh, in fact, you know, we've been talking about it. I, I work with an organization called sail ahead. Uh, and I'm the race director for this organization here in Long Island. And we teach veterans how to sail as an alternative means to, you know, at first it was about PTSD. Uh, and I think we've evolved in, into it's, it builds camaraderie. Yeah. It gives you something to rally around. There's a sense of competitiveness in sailing. You know, it's, it's not physical. You can sail until you're you know old uh, and, and it's not going to physically affect you, but there's a competitive aspect of it. Uh, there's a new skill aspect of it. There's, you still want to be around people who are competent, you know, technically, tactically, um, you know, who, who are just fun to be around. And so if you can create an environment where you can do that, then you can take people who are suffering from these, from these effects, from loss of identity, you know, call it loss of identity is really what it is. Uh, and then when you lose your own personal identity, because for so long you identified, I mean, you identified as, a soldier, a Marine, an airman, you know, you name it. And now all of a sudden you're not, you're a, you were, Yeah. you know, I was a soldier. I was an operator. I can wake up every day and, and think well, I'm, I'm still that. And then I can go for a run and realize I'm not, but the, you gotta, <laughs> gr- you gotta grieve that. Uh, and then if at the same time you're losing those around you who are that support network, what we forget is that we were so close when we served together. How do we then replicate that after? Because just like we needed each other when we were in, we need each other now when we're out. Yeah. There's a group called jump for valor that does something similar, especially if like it it was started by some guys that were paratroopers Mm -hmm. and, um, they just, they, yeah, they take people out for jumps, especially like the wounded, Mm -hmm. uh, like people in wheelchairs and they just strap them to a harness and, and they're jumping out of planes and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. But again, it's like, you know, it's, it's getting people together probably in a way that they haven't for, I don't know how long, right? 
Uh, if they just recently got out, it probably wasn't that long. But if they've been out for a while and they've just been suffering in silence mm-hmm. with this loneliness, because that's really what it is. You can be in oh, a yeah. room full of people and yeah. still feel lonely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's very easy yeah. to do. If you don't identify with them, you don't know, you don't yeah. know anything. Um, yeah. And then we do this otherizing thing and, and we can like live the entire conversation in our head and find all the ways why we're, how we're different, you know, and all it takes is one person to kind of bridge that gap to realize that we're a lot more alike. Well, yeah, but how old were you when you got married? So you, were you single when you went in, in 2003? So we were, um, so my wife and I were, went to college together. We met our freshman year. At Boston? Yeah, at Boston University and we're together through college, you know, like every college couple had our ups and downs. Did you play sports in college? I did. I was on the um, men's rowing team. Okay. Did uh, you did you do that younger as a younger? No, I played football and lacrosse okay. in high school. Um, and how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one brother and one sister. Both are younger. All right. So I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. You did play sports. I did. When you were younger. Yep. What do you think that... Uh, like a lot of what you said and in obviously you were attracted to some other things with special forces and with the United States military, but even doing the leadership work that you do, what do you think playing sports as a younger child is doing for you now in present day? So I attribute the majority of what I was able to achieve in the military by in becoming a green beret mm-hmm. uh, to being to playing sports. Um, I, I 100% believe that I would not have been able to become a green beret if I had not been a division one college rower. But why though? What, what was it about it? Because there was an element of physical and mental toughness that's required to row at, at that level that I believe is very, very difficult to, to get. I don't, I don't think, that there's any other sport that actually forces you to the level of physical exertion in the, in the short amount of time as rowing. I was, I was a walk on. Uh, so I played football. I played lacrosse in high school. What position is playing pretty tall. I played center and defensive end center. Yeah. I was the smallest guy on the line. Uh, height wise. No, but by, by size, size wise. Yes. So the ability to go and play college football was, uh, if unless I went to a Division three school, maybe I could maybe I could make it. But you know, I was funny, somewhat undersized. My I started playing center. That was my first. Piece. I was always I've always I haven't always been this size, but I was always this shape. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, that's where I started playing football was in the like as center, mm-hmm. and then just kind of went as I, I I lost a little bit more weight, got a little bit better at the game, started playing offensive tackle again, lost a little bit more weight, got a little bit better at the game. Uh, pulling guard, mm-hmm. right? And then eventually in high school, I played second string fullback and uh-huh. uh, second string linebacker because there were people out there six six and above that yeah. they would start. That's just the way that works. Right. Yeah, well, we had a small school, so we were able to. Yeah, we were, I was able to play play a lot, but uh, but th- those were those were formidable times. I mean, we there's an element of of toughness that is created by playing sports uh, and, and I wasn't going to play at the collegiate level. And when I was applying to school, I decided that I, I wanted to go to the school that I got, I knew that had the best academics and the one that, and that was Boston university for me. So I chose that. And then I said, well, if I don't play a sport, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. I'm just going to do something stupid and you know, I need to go do something that's going to ground me. And so I contacted the freshman coach on the rowing team and I, 
I said, oh, they, they allow walk-ons. Let me, let me go see what I can do. And I ended up making the first freshman boat. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, was kind of only up from there and had it was, I had an amazing experience there in that I was forced to physically push myself to a point that I really didn't know existed because you work hard in football for 15 to 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I played lacrosse, uh, and, but I played, I played defense. So again, I mean, you know, there's an element of working of certainly working hard. There's, a, there's a technical else element in stick skills, which I never had. Uh, I was always terrible at ball handling, but I was a big guy I could play defense well. And when, when people came in to try to score, my job was to just hit them and knock them over. Yeah. Okay. So I was very good at that. But again, it's it it you're not pushing yourself to rowing where you're in a complete lactic acid shock, mm-hmm. uh, and your body's going into you know, convulsions because because yeah. of the lactic acid buildup in your muscles and and your heart rate is so high that uh, you get to a point where you really, you can't breathe anymore because you're breathing so hard and so fast. Rowing does that to you, so rowing takes you forces you to push yourself to the limit, forces you beyond that limit, teaches you that the the point at which your body will shut down mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, you find that your mental will shut down first. Yeah. Well, probably your your emotional, your emotional side yeah, yeah, will yeah. probably will shut down first and be like, oh God, I don't want to be here. This hurts. And then mentally you'll get in your head, you know, this, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then how are you now talking to yourself? How are you preparing your mind at this point to push through that? Right. Knowing that my emotions and my mental side are going to quit before my body actually will, even though Mm -hmm. my body's, I think my body is telling me it's going to quit first. It will actually go much further than I believe it will. And so having to train those things in, in unison and in parallel, finding those points at which each one of those components starts to shut down and you fail and you don't achieve a goal you set out to do, but now you've set a new bar and you've set a new limit and you understand where you have to get to. Uh, that's so important in, in, in setting a foundation for anything you do. And I know that when I had to then prepare to go into the army, to prepare to go to special forces selection, to go to ranger school, that was what was in my mind. Yeah. Number one, nothing is going to be as hard as that was. <laughs> Absolutely not. Nothing will will do to me what a race does in rowing. And I now know how do I physically prepare for something at a at a at a at the highest level. How do I emotionally prepare? How do I mentally prepare? I work right now with Boston University men's rowing team. I was going to yeah. um, as the as in performance development. And so I speak with the coaches and the athletes weekly, um, and we. And this is what we talk about. We talk about the physical and the emotional aspect of it. We talk about the the you know things like characteristics that are we need out of our athletes. We talk about um, we talk about the the values, the vision. We yeah. talk about you know what I call table stakes. You know things like you operate in and you compete in the the top collegiate division. Uh, this is going to be hard. Yeah. So if you come here every day and you tell me it's hard, well, it's, it should be hard. So let's stop talking about the fact right. that it's hard because and everyone's, 
There's a relationship between psychology and physiology. So like it's the way we're talking to ourselves, the body will respond. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you mentioned self-talk. I mean, are you, are you, are you an I am statement guy? Like I'm a big I am statement guy. Like I write down I am statements um, because I found that I am is the most powerful sentence that we can Mm -hmm. say to ourselves, right? In the, in the English language, like whatever we insert after I am is going to be how we identify ourselves. And that's going to dictate it. I found that it dictates not just where focus goes, energy flows. So that's where I'm going to start paying attention and also my body. So like when we're, when we're, when I'm working out, I do a lot of CrossFit when I'm running distances. If I'm, I mean, I might be a little bit psycho, but like, you know, like I, I start, I start have that mantra of I am, and I'm putting that in there to just keep going. Are you big on that? Do you coach that with those guys? I coach them more. I, yes, to some extent. Um, I wouldn't put it in those words. Uh, I would say that, you know, my, my theory on this is, um, is the slogan that I have you know, for my business in the podcast, how you prepare today determines success tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, you have, you have to do the work. Uh, no one's going to do it for you. Yeah. And I think that is real in sports. It's real in life. It's real in work. Uh, yeah. We all have great ideas. Most people have great <laughs> ideas. And the difference between people who are ultimately successful in life and business in their careers comes down to the amount of work that they put in. A lot of people think I'm struggling this with my daughter right now because she's 12 and everything is, you know, everything is well that they've been doing that for a long time. Oh, they're a professional athlete. I can't do that. Okay. But they weren't always a professional, right? They became a professional athlete because they put the time in, Mm -hmm. they put the work in, they put the work ethic in. Yeah. They dedicated themselves to this. They didn't wake up one day right. and all of a sudden they're a professional athlete and now the work went in. Yeah. So there's a path, there's a road. And when you wake up every day and you can, you know, if that, if, and if it's the, I am that motivates you, right. Then use that, you know, it's, but what I talk to everybody about is what do you have to do today? That's going to determine how you start tomorrow. And if each one of those is deliberate, then you're putting yourself on a path to be successful. It's not going to, and it's not going to be up into the right slope. Right. It's not going to be like that every day. Every day is not going to be better than the next. You're going to have down days. You're going to have, so you may have significant spikes and, you know, and crests and troughs where yeah. you wake up and, and you think all is lost. You know, right. I'm in the wrong job. You know, my family hates me. I have no friends. You know, my, uh, I, I mean, so many of these things are going to come up where you're going to have these and self, self have self doubt, but how do you stop and just think this is part of right. the process? Well, you're talking and, about growth mindset yeah. versus fixed mindset, right? If you're, if it's all part of the process, right, then you're still chipping away at it. Even mm-hmm. on the down slopes day, you're still. Right. You know, you're still get, getting after one, 1% better. That's kind of like what I talk yep. about on this podcast. It's just 1% better every day. Yeah. And then no, right. You have your little pity party for a few minutes right. and then say, okay, look, everybody doesn't hate me. My family doesn't hate me. You know, my, I have friends, even if I have one, it's okay. Yeah. You know, like, it, it, you know, I, I'm not terrible it's at crazy my job. We can just get so selfish like that. Like everybody hates me. They're not going to stop thinking about them to think about how much they hate me. But in my mind, it's just like, and it becomes so real and it can take over our thoughts and paralyze us. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's, oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a resilient attitude. It's a resilient mind mindset. We, you know, we talk about resilience on, on the podcast a lot. Uh, and are you able to, uh, the first step in resilience is really an idea is, is, is humility and, yeah. and the ability to stop, understand the situation that you're in, accept it, be honest with yourself, know that you're not where you want to be. Don't frame ideas around the ideal um, you got to understand here's honestly where I am. Here's how I got here. Now, how am I going to respond and get out of it? Yeah. It's a result of our actions, right? And humility is an accurate self appraisal. So like me saying I'm the worst person in the world is not, is also not an accurate self appraisal, right? right? Just like I'm the greatest in the world. It's like, you know, so it's, it's funny how pride and ego, they're flip sides. There's two sides to that coin. Right. And, and, and I found it even just in my own experience that to be humble for some reason, I, for a very long time, I thought being self-deprecating meant that I was humble. No. Yeah. I was just going to say that. No, you don't. People, they'll resort to that. They'll say, oh, well, being humble means that like, I'm not uh, that, you know, I, I didn't do, or I didn't create the environment in which I'm in now and it's good. You know, like everything is bad. You know, everything, I have to look at myself always through this critical lens and, right. and everything is bad. And, you know, you said self-deprecating, right? You know that, oh, oh, I need to be better. Here's all the reasons why I'm not good. No, if you did a good job, tell yourself you did a good job. You gotta, you gotta own that. You gotta accept yeah. that. The, there's a, the element, the humility is understand in real terms the position you're in. So if it was good, awesome. Own it. Be happy about it. Celebrate it. Learn from it. I tell the, I, I tell the guys on the, the men's rowing team, you go out there and you, you kick someone's ass and you win the race. Hey, let's celebrate. But tomorrow. Yeah. Now you better figure out what, what, what went wrong in that race. Yeah. You know, let's learn from the good. Let's build on it. Identify the opportunities when it's good or bad. And let's do better the next time. Yeah. But you got to embrace the good. Right. Train the brain to get used to that dopamine effect and to like mm -hmm. to chase that. I mean, I almost I was almost like addicted to self-deprecating. I thought for sure I could self-deprecate myself into better behavior. It mm -hmm. just felt like the right thing to do that if I was that critical of myself, eventually I'd do better. Yeah. And I don't know where that came from, but like, yeah, it, it's never worked. And, and I think the method that you're talking about at least seems to work a little bit better for me. I mean, like, you know, well, and also take take time for yourself. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, an importance to that too. Some people schedule it. Uh, I I fall victim all the time. Where you know I'll go sit on the couch and it's nine thirty at night, and for the first ten minutes I start thinking, well, I should be doing these five things. If I was doing these five things, I'd be making progress. You know, forgetting about the fact that since five thirty in the morning I was doing all of these things, and now I'm here. But you got to be able to disconnect for a little bit even if it's for a few minutes and then, yeah. you know what, what am I truly going to achieve tonight that I can't achieve tomorrow? Right. And am I at a point where whatever I do right now isn't even going to be that good? Right. Yeah. I want to get back. So, so I, um, we went off on a little bit of a tangent. my fault, but, um, uh, there I go. self deprecating <laughs> Um, so you met your wife. Was she a rower or was she an athlete? No, in no, college no, or? she wasn't. Nope. She studied, uh, advertising and, um, and, uh, no, but she came to all the races and she was oftentimes the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have you guys been married? You get married 
college uh, or? So we've been uh, married since 2005. We've had a very um, interesting uh, past because you were deployed. Um, we were. We spent a lot of time together uh, apart. We spent a lot of time together. We spent a lot of time apart. Uh, the majority of my military career, uh, I was gone. I was, you know, I, we went to college together and like every college couple had our, you know, times apart from each other and, and, and got back together. And then when I went in the army, um, you know, we were separated certainly for that. And, and then the majority of my army career, uh, we were separated and, uh, we got married in, in 2005 after I graduated ranger school before I went to Iraq for the first time. And then I went to Iraq for a year and, then went to special forces, went back to Iraq for you know two more deployments, about eight months apiece, and then then came back from that, and you know hadn't really been together, um, and so we actually spent a good good amount of time apart after that. Um, we we separated uh, for a long time, um, the better part of seven years, uh, and I missed a, a good portion of my daughter as a young girl. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, whether it was being deployed in the first you know, three or four years of her life and, and then not living together and not being together for until she, the subsequent, you know, three, four years after that. Um, and we lived, uh, even when we lived in New York, uh, for the majority of the time we lived in New York, we lived and I was in business school, we didn't live together. Uh, and I had my own, my own life and they had their own life and, you know, saw, saw them a couple of days a week and, you know, did what I considered was my you know, fatherly duties. And, um, fortunately, uh, we have been able to since kind of rectify yeah. that. Um, we've gone through, you know, our, our hardships, you know, mostly imposed by me, uh, more than anybody else. Um, but, uh, but we never, we never totally broke, um, pretty damn close. Yeah. Uh, a couple of times and always found a way, to think about the bigger picture, think about the importance of raising our daughter. And now we have a son. Um, that's a, an amazing byproduct of, of, of just never quitting, uh, and coming back. And, and now, you know, our family is for the first time in, in a long time is, is indefinitely is probably stronger than it's ever been. Yeah. What kind of work did you have to do on yourself to, to be this new person that was able to come back into their lives? I, I think I had to lose it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, did you do therapy? Did you work with someone else? I mean, like, so I work with an organization called Headstrong. Yeah. Um, and Headstrong is primarily a veteran service organization that works with veterans with, um, with, with mental health. Uh, you want to have mental health conversations and mental health mm-hmm. challenges. And I was very fortunate um, to be linked up with them. And in, I believe, 2016, I think um 2016 17 yeah. and, and i have uh been working yeah with them since and i believe that it's an incredibly valuable organization yeah we can't solve everything on our own right um and you know sometimes you know i hop on hop on my calls and you know talk about you know deep deep emotional you know ways that i feel and other times i just bitch about uh you know <laughs> scaling the podcast and trying yeah. to get yeah. advertisers and looking for guests and you know it gives you an outlet um and so talking but to people i think is really important yeah yeah i mean and and you know yeah we all need that we need that separate from the person that we're in a relationship with right because that person didn't sign up to be our financial advisor our spiritual guru our um you know, whatever our therapist, they signed up to be our wife or our husband, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, um, 
And we need that. We need that community where a way where I can, you know, I think that for me, I get a lot of that uh, with the people that I, I got sober with and that are still in my life and that are a powerful force because we all suffer through that. We talked about that earlier. There's something that happens when you suffer with another person that you build a bond that I don't, I haven't found it anywhere else. I'm not saying that it won't exist. I just, I don't know. And, um, but having that thought partner, that was uh, Chris, like that was his big thing, but just having that community of people that I can be open, honest, vulnerable, and they know exactly who I am and all of the things that, not that I would never tell this other person, but just like they don't need, like that's not what, they don't need me to be that person with them, right? They, they need another version of Philip to show up. And it's only because I have that community of people that I get to have those conversations, whether it's me just complaining about something or really just talking about something that's going on with me, like something that like is, you know, a deep fear of mine, like, you know, that I can, I, I can deal with that there and it doesn't land on the other person. Um, and I can show up as the person they really actually need and want me to be. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's huge, man. Um, you know, one thing there's, I mean, I could sit here and talk to you all day, you know, like I feel like, and, uh, I hope that we get a chance to really keep doing that. But there's one question that I ask everybody mm-hmm. that's been on the podcast. Um, it, it's about a jumping off point. It's a moment in time where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, but you're uncertain of what to do next. And, you know, some people have described it as a moment in time where at the time it was, it was a horrible experience. It was either emotionally painful, physically painful or both. And at the time they didn't want it to be happening, but now looking back they're they're just truly grateful that they had that experience because they wouldn't, they wouldn't be who they are. They wouldn't have the people in their lives that they have. They wouldn't have the perspective on something that they have now, whether it's career, it doesn't have to be about your job. It doesn't have to be anything. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know. Just throw that out there to you. That's a good, that's a good question. You may have, you, I'm not used to being the guest and I might, yeah. and a lot of times he, the guest looks at me and they say, that's a really good question. And then I always think, I don't know. Are you just saying that? Cause you're stalling for an answer and I, <laughs> now I'm doing it to you. Um, so I, I think, I think life's cha- a bunch of chapters. Um, you know, your life's a book. Yeah. Uh, and and each and each part of your life um, yeah, is a different chapter, uh, and so just like your 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 life has a, a, a certainly a beginning and unfortunately an end, um, and uh, within within each one of those chapters, there's a defining moment. There's defining chapters um, that will open and will close, and as we get older and have more experiences, we write new chapters that that begin and end. Uh, you know, I I think it would be easy for me to say that the defining um, moment, you know, for me would be, you know, going into the special forces. I think certainly, you know, that's, that's a big one. Um, You know, I would honestly tell you that, you know, I think that there, the defining moment for me was probably, uh, losing, losing my job at, at snap. You know, I think was a big one. Um, You know, very, very unfortunate. I just, I tried to do too much. Um, I tried to push the envelope too hard. I tried to, you know, both professionally and personally. Um, I didn't take the, I didn't take the cues um, that I was seeing about, you know, the organization not ready for change in the way that I was trying to bring change. Um, 
and uh started pissing people off um yeah. and you know i'm like a, yeah i'm like we talked about the podcast you know i'm a i i'm an agent of change i'm a transformative leader i'm a yeah. visionary you know i i want to win at all costs and i don't do well often when there's roadblocks in the way and sometimes especially if you're new to an organization if you don't understand fully you know what we call in special forces you know number one understand your operational environment um you know and when you violate that principle uh things can go wrong very quickly and sometimes you might not be mature enough or or uh, humble enough to see when that's happening and i think that you know certainly that was an experience in my life where i did that um mm-hmm. and you know that combined with you know my personal situation with my you know n- not being together with my family um all all came to to one one end you know fairly quickly and that uh was something that it took a long time to get over um but i will say that i tell you how you have to hit bottom um yeah, yeah i think you with your experience in your life and you know yeah. can, can attest to that that you know some one point you know you look at you're standing at the bottom of the well and you're like well this is it yeah <laughs> you know i've lost i've lost everything i have um yeah. who do i want to be yeah. uh and and for me, you know, that was a moment where I looked back on my life uh, and I always thought about the peop- person and the people that I wanted to be. Um, and I had to ask myself the hard question of, am I that person right now? Um, and, and I would be lying if I said, you know, in a day, yeah. you know, you're like, yeah, I am. I'm not, I'm not this person, you know, today I changed. No, it takes time. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you ask yourself, over a period of time enough am i who i want to be um am i living the values and the life that i want am i doing right for me and the people that i love um and then take the cues you know who's still there um and and who are the people that are still looking at you saying you know we're still here for you uh if you want us uh and you want this support you know we're still here and we can do this um and i was able to do that and it took a while yeah certainly um uh but you know when eventually i kind of turned around and was like i'm not who i want to be i'm not who i always said i was going to be um and now i have you know mistakes and hard lessons learned and battles fought uh and now you know go be the person you want yeah you know go do the things you want to do do it with the people you want to do it um it's not going to be easy it's not going to be happy someday it's not going to be as glamorous or glorious as you know you might but you squandered that you already lost it you're yeah. not getting it back do you find yourself having a sense of gratitude that you actually went through that and had that because you wouldn't be the person you are now or doing the things you are now had that not been the case yeah i think in the long run uh, i got a way to go uh, yeah. i lost a lot of money <laughs> Yeah, no, I can. I know <laughs> a, tre- a tremendous amount of money that you know is you're never going to get back, and yeah. you know, it'll take a long time to recover from. Um, but uh, life's not about money. You know, life yeah. life for me is about impact. Um, yeah, and life for me, you know, I think at one point probably may have been about that, but I think for me it's about you know who who do I bring impact to? You know, whose life can can I make better, even if it's in one one small way. Yeah. One, one small piece. Can you take one thing away from talking to me, listening to me, interacting with me? Um, that makes you, your, yourself, your team, your organization better. And can I do that for my family too? Yeah. Um, then every day I wake up and I, I say, I've been given a, 
I'd say, you know, not even a second, probably a third shot, you know, at getting this thing right. Um, you know, what choices are you going to make today? And we talked about that, talked about that with the guys at BU, you know, and Kristen Holmes from Whoop and her and I spoke about it, you know, performance is a choice. Um, and when I, you know, and Kristen had a great perspective on performance is a choice that she took with her, uh, she built with her field hockey team, um, at Princeton, uh, but I say that you have a choice to perform, but your choices also affect performance. So when I wake up every day, I think, okay, today I have to choose how I'm going to perform, whether it's professionally or personally, um, and now know that every choice I make, what I eat, what I drink, my behavior, is going to affect my performance yeah. and those around me. And if I can stay somewhat centered on those things and, and think big picture uh, and focus on what I got to do today to be successful tomorrow, then I think we get there. Yeah. No, I love it, man. Well, look, I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with me and giving me this chance to, to come by to your house. Of course. You know, yeah, it's been uh, great. we only had to refill the fire one time. Yeah, I know. And uh, thanks for having us here and nice and warm. And um, well, look, I'm, you know, I'm down in DC and, a lot of government contractors, a lot of tech firms, a lot of people that can benefit from having someone like you come in and speak to their teams and, and talk about the stuff that, um, that you talk about with BU and everything else. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Is it through FR6? Is it through the talent group? Yeah, uh, either way. So um, connect with me on, on LinkedIn, uh, Fran Rachopi on Instagram. Uh, on, uh, I think it's Rachopi Fran or yeah. Jedberg Podcast Jedberg on Podcast. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn has a page too. We have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, a YouTube channel for the Jedberg podcast and for FR6. Uh, my website's FR6.com, uh, FRSIX.com. Um, but yeah, any of those means will find me. Yeah. Or, we'll through, make, or through Talent World Group. Yeah. We'll make sure we put links uh, below the show. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.